memory. It's a big topic. You know, we see it in our everyday lives. Everything that we do as a process is the result of memory. Uh, memory. We also have memory on our phones, whatever that means. And we tend to have a balance of using our actual memories in our phones. But what is the interface between memory and spirituality? Is there even one? Today I have with me Katerina Kern. Uh, I'll let her introduce herself and we'll have this discussion on memory and spirituality. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Katerina Kern. I'm a consultant for the Circe Institute, which is a nonprofit in classical education. Um, I also work as an adjunct professor in the Honors College at Belmont Abbey College, teaching classics. And um, I teach as well for the Circe Institute and write and edit and do research and have the joy of being able to share the research that I'm doing with audiences like you. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. So I want to start by, you know, we as Orthodox Christians, there's an emphasis on memorization and sp more specifically the Psalms. And there's like this emphasis, we start young. And when people think of memorization, they think of rote, repetition. Yeah. It's monotonous. It's difficult. I remember I had a, a, a church member at my church ask me, how can I memorize? And, it, you know, she was in her 40s at the time, and it was very frustrating for her. And, you know, at the time, we just, it's just repetition, you know, repeat. Yeah. Or, or, you know, some people suggest taking certain supplements as if memory is a passive thing, you know, something that needs to, you know, the chemicals have to be there in order for it to happen. And if the chemicals are not balanced, then there's no hope of memory. So is this how memory was understood in the past or was it something totally of a different nature? That's a great question. I've also experienced that in my time in the Orthodox Church. Um, memory is certainly crucial for prayers and the Psalms and the liturgy, all these things that we're taught to write the words on our heart, right? To store up the wisdom, this tradition that was passed down to us from the Jews really of memorizing. Um, and this has seeped into education as we view it today as well. Even in classical education, there's divisions of, of understanding the role of memory, whether it's rote memorization as some people call it or more creative activity. Um, and, and yes, this is, this is the core of, of knowledge. It's really crucial that we understand memory. Um, so traditionally, and well, in the medieval world, I'll start there as just in a general overview. And there's of course nuance that hopefully we'll be able to add as we talk more. Um, but basically there were two understandings for what memory was and the act of memory. And these came largely from Aristotle, but we have recitatio, which was just recitation. So he talked about this as parroting. You're just repeating things back. And that's typically how we think of memory in the world today, right? And we think, oh, I live something or I hear something or see something. And I simply repeat what I've experienced. That's, you know, as you were saying, our general mode of understanding memory. And that was what they called recitatio. And it was, it was the beginning of memory, um, but just the beginning. If we think about the trivium of grammar, logic, rhetoric, it was really just the grammar. And then there's also memoria, which was a craft, it was an art. 
it was composition. So if we think of collecting and recollecting. So when we learn things, we're collecting things. This is where the Latin word legere, um, the root of that is also to gather and collect and read, of course, means to read. Um, so learning was an, is an act of collecting and then remembering is an act of recollecting. You're recollecting and you're creating something new. So actually in the medieval world, it was never considered memory unless something new came from what you were memorizing. And sometimes that meant it was reshaping your own soul. That one, one, that's one of the ways that it's talked about quite frequently as a formation of your soul. And this was really um, more as the Christians were contemplating scripture and thinking about medieval or um, classical modes of memory in a new light, in a new Christian light. So that it was the formation of the soul and you were the new thing that was being composed. But you were also composing things like psalms and hymns and bestiaries and encyclopedias and cycloplays. There's all this creativity that comes from the medieval world that's oral. And so we don't always understand it as the act of memory, but memory was shared. It was a creative activity and it was very communal. It was a shared creative communal activity. Yeah. And that for some of the listeners now, like this is not what I understand I'm doing when I'm trying to memorize scripture. And it's interesting because, you know, what you describe as as the medieval mode of memory has its antecedents in, in, you know, late antiquity. Yes. Quintilian, um, the Roman writer and educator, he wrote that large, I think, what, six volume work on education, the Instituto Oratorio. And Cicero also, um, you know, wrote things along those lines. And both of them talked about, you know, these principles of memory. So like, you know, we we tend to see memory when we're memorizing something cereal. No, for those of you listening, not, you know, Cheerios and all that, but um, cereal as in it's a a sequence. It's, It's here's what we said first, here's what we say next. And it becomes chained that way. But you know, what you're describing, it's, it's, it's almost like they play with the memories, you know, they organize and reorient. So it, it's almost as if it has a geometrical quality, if I may say that. Did they make that connection in, in the ancient world and the medieval world? Yeah, I'm not necessarily in those terms, but certainly Hugh of St. Victor talks about the importance of separating things up into pieces and identifying them with places. And this really comes from Simonides. Cicero talks about the story of Simonides. This, it's this, you know, this old myth of memory where he was at a, a dinner banquet and the building fell in and then the remains of the people had to be identified for the family members. And they didn't know, you know, which remains went with each person. And Simonides went in and identified the places where everyone had been sitting. And then from this, men like Cicero say, this tells us about memory and how memory works is locational. And um, because of that, men like Hugh of St. Victor in this 12th century were saying, we need to assign things that we need to memorize to certain places. So first, we're going to take a vast amount of things, like maybe the Aeneid or all of the Psalms. And we're gonna break it up into small parts. And then we're gonna take each part and assign it to a particular place. And they believe that that was the way that memory best worked. And when it was in these isolated places, you could pull from anywhere. And that was the whole point. If you needed to go in chronological order, like the alphabet or 
for me, it's the books of the, the books of the, uh, sorry, the books of the Bible. I still have to say them in order to know what was where, but they would say that's not memory. In, in memory, you can pick and pull individual pieces and move them around and create something altogether new. And I think that Mary is the prime example for this. With Mary, we see that she spent her youth in the temple contemplating the words of God, storing them up on her heart. And then when the time came, when the angel came and spoke to her, her, her song, Mary's song that we find in, in the book of Luke is a combination of Song of Psalms, sorry, Song of Songs and um, Psalms. We see all these Hebrew patterns of poetry all throughout her own song. So we know that she was able to absorb and then when the time was right, she was able to compose something from these pieces that she had so stored up in herself that she was able to create something new and something beautiful from what she had memorized previously. So it's like the heart has taken these things and because it's, it's chunked them like that, you know, turn them into things that you can almost, I'm going to say play with, because, you know, yeah. look at examples too from the fathers um, where I think that, that, you know, that term works very well to describe what was going on, but like the words of these different songs have become her own. Exactly. And she's uttering them and maybe it's not even fully aware that they're coming from somewhere else, but the stringing in together, that's the originality. That's right. where these words from the scriptures have come to describe her own experience and that moment that she's uttering them. Exactly. And this is why they weren't afraid of imitation in art. For some reason today in, in the arts, we teach children to just create out of nothing. We, we're asking them to be like God, create ex nihilo. This is ludicrous. In the medieval world, they were celebrating imitation and creating through imitation. And they would just take years and years and years, a whole lifetime of memory, store it up, and then create a new thing from all that they had memorized. And it might be a hundred psalms turn into one song. You know, it, it you pick the most appropriate thing for the context. So it takes a lot of discernment and a lot of wisdom to truly practice the art of memoria. And I think maybe that's why we have abandoned it so much. Yeah, and, and I wanna to come to that, you know, this idea of, you know, we don't imitate, but we, we make our own. And, you know, this is the mimesis versus poesis. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually deceptive when we think we can be our own person and, and do our own thing and be absolutely original. Even the word original, you know, right. that, that word would have been understood totally differently in, in the ancient world in the Middle Ages. Like it means to originate something within the context of what you're imitating. Um, yeah. Whereas now original means to do something totally new and, and it's, it's become, you know, culturally that's true. But even in like technology, you know, look at smartphones. They're basically the same product. They're imitating one another. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. imitation is still valued um, in yeah. many cases. But it's like this idea that I got to be new. Well, this is why nobody can keep up with any cultural trend anymore. You know, mm -hmm. what, what yesterday was, you know, right. Today is absolutely taboo and forbidden and, you know, mm -hmm. vicious and, and evil. And because there's no more imitation it's it's looked down on as like fake and inauthentic right but, but the reality is it's it's we are creatures that imitate 
I mean, even like like this whole idea in the brain, there are mirror neurons, and the biggest um, in the species that has the most of them is the human being. We are more imitative than any other creature on the planet. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's like, if we don't imitate, we're actually rejecting part of our biology, our humanity. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting you touch upon that point with the Magnificat, because, and, and for those of you listening, that's Mary's song. Because like when you read the church fathers, like like the homilies of origin or, or St. Augustine, um, mm -hmm. You find, at least in the translations that I see into English, like from Fathers of the Church by Catholic University of America, they will put, whenever they quote parts of the Psalms in quotes. Yeah. And then you realize very shortly, like this is overwhelming. Like um, they've quoted like 10 different Psalms in five sentences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, what's going on here? It's like, this is a sermon they were giving. This is not, they sat down and thought about what to chain together. Mm -hmm. And it makes me realize that's, they're taking memoria, like you're saying, where they've taken these things, they've played with them, the Psalms, mm -hmm. in their heads. You know, it's colored their worlds. Mm -hmm. And even by space, you know, they see a tree, they remember the verses that talk about trees. Yes. They light, they remember verses like the Lord is my light and my salvation. You know, they see, you know, they stand on a mountain and see the earth. So they remember the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness or, oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And now these things are being triggered by the way that they learned how to memorize yeah. and the words have become their own. It's like St. Ambrose has um, a very beautiful a way of expressing it he says like uh, it's a mind soaked in the scriptures um in a he wrote to constantius saying fill the center of your mind so as to have your plot of land moistened and watered by fountains from the family estate being the scriptures and the tradition mm -hmm. accordingly he who reads much and also understands is filled he who has been filled sheds water upon others and then it becomes this, you know, sermon giving, this, this book writing, this becomes part of the tradition. And this becomes the framework by which the Christian church understands the world around it. Right. So I think too, it has something to do with the way they were memorizing, you know, like, at least I can speak for myself, you know, when, when I started trying to memorize verses and parts of the Psalms, it was the serial way, you know. Yeah. repeat it multiple times just keep repeating it hear it <laughs> and try again tomorrow and eventually it'll sink mm -hmm. into your mind but it didn't trigger like recognition like oh i see light so i'll remember psalm 27 yeah. or or i see like i'm standing on a mountain so i remember uh, you know psalm 8 or, or psalm 24 it's just it's just there when i need to pray but it doesn't fill the world for me and it yeah. doesn't color the world. And I think the difference between our form of memorization in the modern world or what we associate with it, it's, it's really due to our lack of, you know, in the West, we've lost this knowledge that it doesn't produce the robust imagination and spirituality that the early Christians had. Right. It's almost Gnostic. It's, it's weirdly. And, and I think it might be a consequence of, of books of increased literacy, but also computers. Um, we try and program things into our brain. 
that's what rote memorization is. If you're just repeating, if it's just repetition of the same line over and over again, we're treating ourselves like our, our rational mind is separate from the rest of our body. It's, I, it seems to me to be very Gnostic. Um, but actually in the medieval practice of memory, it was fully embodied. There was always an understanding that memory had to be emotional. It had to be tied to your body in some sense. So this is, it's interesting that you use those examples of nature, which were so frequently used as memory triggers. Augustine talks about how if you go out into spaces where you've memorized, things just jump out at you. You don't have to recall them. You don't have to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to start thinking about Psalm 5 right now. It just jumps out at you because you've embedded it within the landscape, within your physical world. So that's what they were doing. That's what we see with monastic gardens, which I think are just fantastic. I mean, so many things, I sort of made this point earlier, but so many things that they were using to practice the art of memory are misunderstood to us now because we see them as artifacts and we think the physical artifact is the and was the end goal in and of itself. Things like Psalters, illuminated manuscripts, bestiaries, gardens, cathedrals, um, to some extent, Yes, they were being created to be created, but they were also the byproduct of the art of memoria. And that's what the gardens are. So if you go out in a, in a monastic garden, they're divided very geometrically and into all these intentional shapes. There's usually a tree or a fountain in the middle, which I think comes straight from Revelation and Ezekiel. There's always a fence around. There's all of these things that are really key elements of a medieval memory palace. And it's because they're taking a normal part of their life, which was anywhere from what, one to five hours a day spent in a garden for the average monk. Um, and they're taking this contemplative part of their life where they're rooting themselves in the land and in their bodies, and they're meditating on scripture and embedding that scripture in the food that they eat. So in multiple ways, they're nourishing themselves. They're, they're praying and filling the food with their prayers and then consuming those prayers in the food. And it's this cyclical relationship that they have with nature um so 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 it's it's all very embodied and it comes out it can look to us like they're just speaking analogically about nature but i think it's more than just an analogy for them i think it's a reflection of the medieval cosmos and how the material world is an expression of the spiritual world so it's all available coming back to that idea too of imitation if, if they were imitating the, the physical material world, if they believed that it was embodying a spiritual realm, then excellence, perfection was something to be imitated and you could find that in the world around you. But if we're, if we're refusing to imitate, then we're refusing excellence, right? Because if we're, if we're gonna truly embrace imitation, then we're imitating Christ. And if we're gonna reject imitation, we have no choice but to eventually turn away from excellence altogether. Yeah, it becomes, you know, we imitate whoever's gone viral on uh, TikTok. Oh, sure. a ago. And then, you know, that person's no longer famous the next week. And it becomes a very frustrating cycle of, I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know, to yeah. number one, carry out my own life and two, to find community in this big mess of a world that we're in right now. Right. If you have nothing to imitate, you're going to imitate the worst things. And then you're like a little duck floating on the water where are you gonna go yeah you're flap hard with your little feet i don't know maybe they're not flapping their feet under there <laughs> maybe not at all. just getting ready to sink i think or to float yeah, face yeah. down um so you mentioned a couple of things um that i want our listeners to understand but you mentioned chunking 
Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Memory Palace. Okay. And um, I, I would like you to elaborate on what principles um, the ancients and medievals identified as being the best ways to memorize something. Mm, yeah. Including those two strategies. Okay, sure. Yeah, well, fundamentally, they said that if you needed to memorize something, you wanted it to have emotional and visual resonance. So you wanted to try and make it really funny or really vibrant. Um, this is one of the reasons for the really bright colors in illuminated manuscripts. Or sometimes if you look in medieval texts, you'll see these bizarre little illustrations on the side. Sometimes they're quite crude. And people, scholars look at that and say, look at the monks, they're making these crude drawings in their cells, like what hypocrites, or you know, whatever it is, they, they receive some form of condemnation for it. But it's actually just a memory trigger, right? If you laugh at something, you're gonna remember it more than if you don't. Um, so, so if something's funny, if you have some type of bodily response to something, so, um, if, or if you're engaging your body. So this is one of the reasons that um, within the liturgy, there's so much intentionality towards the body and towards all five senses. We, I think in the, in the liturgy in the Orthodox Church, we use all of our senses and that's very intentional. It's because we need to engage the whole body and it's, it's the hippocampus that stores memory and personal autobiographical experiences. So if we can tie all of these things together, it's a lot easier to remember things. And they were talking about that. I mean, modern neuroscientists are talking about that now as if it's a new discovery, but the, the medieval monks were practicing this a long time ago. Yeah, so like you mentioned emotional resonance and you know, one, like you said, funny or, or grotesque, you know, horrifying. Okay. You know, there's that medieval aesthetic where things can be both, um, beautiful and horrifying at the same time exactly and, and it's it's to trigger the memory um right and it's interesting because you also mentioned that principle of storytelling as emotional resonance right mm -hmm. and right if you can elaborate on that as being a strategy that they used to yeah. use yeah right so if you needed to memorize something it's it's helpful to make a narrative they talk about how humans readily remember stories that's just we're inclined towards stories so if you need to memorize something that maybe doesn't already have a story element you can just add a story element to it and this is what we see again um, modern memory masters use this all the time by creating stories and narratives for numbers or you know if they have to memorize some random number of decks in a card or something they'll make each deck or each number of character and string together whole stories um, so telling stories was really important as well in the in the medieval mind. So like a, an example, they would try to fit, for example, like, um, you know, certain Psalms, let's say Psalms one, two and three. They want to mm -hmm. memorize them and they want to memorize them according to this strategy, not serially. So maybe they'd have a character who's walking and sitting by a tree at a river, then lifts up his eyes and sees all these kings marching toward him and then runs away. And then praise to God that, you know, um, those who have increased, how Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Right. So then this type of turning those three Psalms into a story becomes a way to remember the Psalms in a very solid way. Um, one, exactly. one where you could also rewind the story. So you could start from backward. He's praying to God because he saw the kings when he was mm -hmm. sitting next to a tree. So storytelling, you know, that's a principle. And, and you know, like you said, like modern neuroscientists think they've made this great discovery about yeah. narratives being, you know, creating narratives to remember things as opposed to rote memorization. 
And the reality is they're just confirming what the ancients and medievals were already doing for thousands of years. And, you know, that's that's the thing, too, about science. It can never propose. It can only test. You know, it can't come up with ideas. Science fundamentally, like the process itself is not imaginative. It is only, it serves to confirm or disconfirm. And and people don't understand that when they're trying to, when they've confirmed something, it's because someone threw out the idea. Well, what about narratives and memory? I'm guessing somebody was reading in classical literature or something. Yeah, I wonder. And, and, And at least, you know, we know like the early, early scientists, they were very immersed in classical literature and, and you know, Galileo, um, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was going back to ideas in Aristotle when he was trying to formulate the idea of gravity. Sure, it's not in there, but at least it opened up his imagination to what these things might be. Right, and that's a perfect example of memoria, right? Even in science, we're recalling what has come before and we're testing and we're exploring and then we're creating something new through memory. It's all, it all comes back to memory. If we forget an entire tradition or entire heritage, then, then we lose so much, even in scientific development. I mean, this is even what we see in the, in the Renaissance, right? The West forgot so much of their knowledge, so much was lost in the fall of Rome and you know everything that happened. And then in the East, it was carried on and the, tr- the Latin texts were translated into Arabic and Greek. And then all of this technology was advancing and then eventually came back to the West. Even science is impacted by this relationship of memory and the people. And people don't understand that. Like it's everything functions within a tradition. Right. There is nothing. And I feel like it's part of the iconoclasm that happens starting like the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation, where like mm. this value of iconoclasm, just tear everything down that's come before you. Yeah. And yeah. what they didn't understand for science, for philosophy, And even for religion now, Christianity in the West has started going back far back into the past, you know, um, among Catholics, even among um, uh, Protestants, there's that movement of paleo-orthodoxy. They go back, like the ancient commentary on scripture is actually a Protestant product, but because they were seeking the mind of the early church. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that they created that. Yeah, yeah. Thomas Oden and uh, Christopher Hall, they, you know, uh-huh. of all things, you know, he was he was part of, I believe, like a liberal um, Protestant uh, denomination. And he was doing like graduate work and had a Jewish professor and the Jewish professor told him, you know, huh? I said, there we go. Memory and Judaism. It's key. Yeah. So Jewish professor tells him, you know, um, there's a group of Christian writers you're probably unaware about. No, they're, they're called the church of others and he was unaware of, and then you know he started reading them and this whole movement was born and uh yeah. it's interesting because they have gone back to the sources of the tradition and mm-hmm. it's led to more robust spirituality a lot of you know not new ideas people might call them new ideas but they're really the ancient ideas coming back to engage with a new context yeah. um so that's that's memoria working there. Whereas, you know, no memoria equals everyone does their own thing and yeah. cultures are created to disappear very quickly. And even in science, that was the case. Mm. Scientists, you know, I, I feel like scientists follow that same iconoclastic spirit that 
originated in the Reformation. Hmm. Like, look at these ancient fools. They don't know anything. We're superior to them. And they don't understand the whole history of science shows when they need a development yeah. <laughs> from the past up until the present. And even yeah. like quantum physicists are actually starting to read very heavily in Aristotelian philosophy and Platonic philosophy because they're finding it's starting to help them imagine possibilities mm. about what they're observing, to how to interpret what they're observing in, in the laboratories. Um, so it, it's very interesting. Like imitation is key to advancement. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's the past is key to progress. And those, those ideas are opposed in our current mm. climate you know yeah. past and progress are, yeah that just reminds me of the beginning of this conversation of people saying you know in church it's it's memorization there's a lot of repetition right we go to church and we do basically the same thing every week what's that about um but we're imitating right we're imitating as we grow up we're imitating the other people in the church and as we imitate and learn how to do the work of the people, we participate in the work of the people, which is the ultimate act of memoria. At church every week in remembering Christ, we participate in this dynamic interaction of memoria, which I truly believe that when memoria is done in community, it's for lack of a better word, magical, but maybe the better word is sacramental. Right, reality seeps through and we find new life every time when we when we co-create. And that's that's why we're repeating together so that we can learn how to participate in memoria. And then as we participate and have it so fully ingrained in us, there is new life and there is new creation. And sometimes that's the hymns, sometimes that's your own personal experience with Christ in the Eucharist. Sometimes it's going home and having your own meditation and hymns and prayers but it's always new life, it's always creative. And I think that co-creation with the work of the people is the ultimate act of both imitation and memoria. Yeah, and, and it is the source. It becomes the source of our spirituality. Yeah. Even, even what we consider to be individual spirituality is ultimately derived from that communal gathering. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we, we talked about chunking, we talked about... Um, memory palaces we talked about um i think what was the third uh like narratives using narratives to create memories um There's one other thing i would say about chunking if that's if you want me to expand on that a little bit oh, more yes. yes okay um one of the things that hugh saint victor talks about is actually he talks about dividing things up into units which are basically seven plus or minus two which right that's another thing that people think is new that you know some some scientists discovered um and so as you divide things up into these small groups he talks about the importance of being able to take in all the information in one glance so that could mean that you're taking the psalm that you're memorizing and then dividing it up into smaller verses that are about seven plus or minus two words which if you look at the psalms that's pretty much the average of a verse and I think that's because they were using Hughes' um, methodology of dividing things up. And then you take a key theme, a key idea from that psalm and make it one, one picture, one glance that you can quickly look at and know exactly what that psalm is about. And if you can thematically and, and pictorially tie that theme into the number of the, of the psalm, 
then you can think about the psalm and immediately know exactly what it's about. And you can get the first line if you have a picture that expresses the theme and maybe triggers and hooks to the first couple of words. Um, so that's one way to create like a little picture at the beginning of each psalm that he talks about when you're memorizing. So that's why we see the insipids on um, medieval manuscripts. If you look at the Psalms, there's almost always at the beginning of any medieval manuscript, some elaborate illustration to then begin the, the text. And I believe that's because they wanted to practice memory. They were helping other people easily memorize the contents. Because I mean, if you were looking at a illuminated manuscript, if you were very lucky, you got to see it in person and like individually, I mean, you can see it without seeing it in person, um, but you got to pour over it a little bit for, you know, a certain limited amount of time and then you had to leave, that was it. So you had to memorize anything that you were learning from a text. So I think that they were giving these little triggers to each other to help each other memorize much more quickly. And the act of creating the illuminated manuscript was the act of memoria. So as you were practicing memoria and writing the words on your own heart, you were also writing them down on the page. So there's this, again, dynamic interaction between creation and storing up. Um, and then they would also draw entire pictures, like one picture of an entire book of scripture and then store the different elements within that picture as well. Yeah, and it, and it makes sense because, you know, when we look at different manuscripts, like the older manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts of the scriptures are just text. Then as resources expand, you notice like the first letters become larger. Yeah. And eventually the first letters are even larger, but within them is a scene from the psalm. Exactly. And that scene is intended to trigger, like you remember the scene, because we remember um, images more than we remember words. Right. You know, we're more visual in that sense, but we close our eyes and we've remembered the scene. And now we can associate it with the words. Right. So like, um, you know, if, I mean, I, I think you gave an example in, our, in the course, um, The Art of Memory, um, I think it was Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon. Yes. There was like, I remember um, in the letter was like the people hanging their harps up. Mm -hmm. They're not willing to play their instruments. So that reminds us, you know, by the rivers, we sat and wept. And, right. and how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And I don't know the song, but like the verses are coming back to me. Mm -hmm. when I think of the picture. Like I've never even tried to sit down and memorize that psalm. Yes. But that's the power. It's it's evoking exactly. the visual, the visual aspects of our memory. And what's interesting is all these, like you said, all these different principles of memory now we know correspond to certain parts of the brain. Yeah. Autobiographical memory is in one region of the brain that's different than visual memory, that's different than, you know, like emotional resonance. And and it's it's really like very humanistic, like this, mm -hmm. this type of memory treats the human as a human. Exactly. Whereas you, you mentioned earlier, like rote treats the human as if it's a computer, you know, we're trying to download information and it's like, not even like efficiently. It's like more like windows, yeah. windows 95, <laughs> not, <laughs> not like, not like modern right. where like you upload them. Um, you, you remember like people will never know the pain. But when yeah. you upload and it says uh, estimated time remaining. 
and it will be like two and a half hours for, right. for like a hundred page text, which now you upload to Google Drive and it's 10 seconds. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I feel like when we understand that's how the ancients understood memory and that these were the strategies they were using to memorize, it demystifies, you know, like the fathers were not just superhumans who could memorize a psalm at a glance. Right. You know, pepper their writings with psalms. You know, every other sentence has three psalms in it. <laughs> three. No, these were people like us who were responding to, to the gospel of our Lord, mm -hmm. who were using the strategies that they had, which, you know, obviously are more are superior. There's no doubt about it. And more human than what mm -hmm. we're using now. And that led to a robust spirituality that we can get back. And a lot of people, you know, I know a lot of people they are frustrated when any talk of memory comes up or yeah. uh, see like when you ask them about a verse, they're like, oh, that verse, that verse, let me check on my phone. So right. I have a question about that. Do you think there's anything wrong with that? You know, the, the Bible on my phone, I'm going to check it when I need it to find what I need. Because a lot of people, you know, listening might say, well, that was the past. We now have technology. It's why not just use what we have? Why not just outsource our memories to our phones, even with the Bible? And maybe they'll make an argument like, well, we're sanctifying our phones. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to throw that question out, what would you say right. to well, that's a great question. I have a lot of thoughts. I have to start by saying I am going to be a bit of a hypocrite in my response because I do have a Bible on my phone. <laughs> but so do I, I, try. I have, I do too. So. <laughs> it's, it's a shame. I downloaded it for like those days when I know that I'm just not going to have a physical Bible. And now, of course, I, I use it more than I wish I did. Um, but there's, there's two sides to, from which I could answer that question. Um, one is just more the teachings of the church which is that we are what we behold, right? We become what we consume. So if we want to be Christ-like, we have to store up the word in our heart. And I mean, this comes again back to Mary. I think she is the perfect image of memoria. Like I mentioned earlier, she spent so much time meditating on the word. The word took form in her. Now I'm not trying to say that she made that happen through her own power is definitely the power of the Holy Spirit, but in some very mysterious sense that I cannot comprehend, she meditated upon the word and it became a part of her. So much so that she gave birth to the word. Um, so I think if we are not storing up these words, something else will take place in us. Something else will, will enter into us. It, because we're spending that time consuming something else. We just are. So whatever it is that we're consistently exposing ourselves to is going to become a part of us. I mean, we can't pretend that we're just this one body going through the world and we don't soak in like a sponge our environment, going back to that Ambrose quote that you mentioned earlier. I think it was, was it Ambrose? Who yeah, yeah. Us? Well, he says, um, you know, let the land be moistened. Mm. And, and he's, you know, he's in metaphor speaking about the scriptures raining down on us. And that when we become filled like clouds, we will um, shed our um, rain upon others. So it will, it will impart from us to others as well. Right. And we can't do that. There's no way to do that without first storing up the word in our hearts. There's just no way. I mean, anyone who's ever tried has probably experienced 
um, the struggles of having a good attitude and being kind to someone who hurt you when you haven't taken any time for the Lord and for celebrating the good, the beautiful, for soaking up the good into you. It's, I mean, in those moments when our guard is down and it's a gut reaction, we can't decide what comes out. Only what we've put in is going to come out in those moments. So we have to intentionally put in the good, the beautiful. We have to put in the word of God and, and at least intentional things that we want to come out in those moments where we just don't have control over what is vomited up out of us. And, and then my other answer to that question has more to do with um, neuroscience, which I'm not a neuroscientist. I've just looked into a little bit about what they are saying as I've been thinking through medieval memory. Um, and we do know that synapses are formed in the brain through repetition. So when we remember things and when we think about things, we do physically reconstruct our brain. This is again, coming back to the idea that we are, we're not just separate minds and bodies. Um, we are embodied souls. And so what happens to our body impacts all of us. So our thoughts also impact our brain. And when we think certain thoughts repetitively, we are strengthening certain synapses and creating connections in our brain. Um, so we are physically reconstructing our brain as we continually meditate upon good, true, beautiful things. And then we will physically become um, an image, again, coming back to this idea of imitation of the good, the true, the beautiful. And, and it's interesting you say that because most people would associate memorization with you know, intentionally repeating something to try to remember, but even the act of remembering becomes a repetition itself. Mm, um, right. And, you know, this question is a big one. It's something that I've thought about for a while because I feel that our civilization is tending to a point where we just don't know the difference anymore between humans and machines. Um, the analogy of the human being as an advanced machine has just ingrained itself too mm. far and you know it's got to come to a point where we have to uproot it because it's not a correct analogy the reality is that machines in a limited way resemble us not the other way around absolutely you know, we're the larger more dynamic system um mm. and i've thought about you know like as you were speaking about the importance of having something in our heart versus just in our pockets in our phones mm -hmm. um it's the vision when we look at anything, we're not just looking at it. We're also interpreting it at the same time. Right. And it's gone to a point where we may not even be aware of that interpretation is something humans do 100% of the time, not just when they exert themselves. So when we see a tree, we're not just beholding some type of object. We are interpreting it as this is a, a plant that grows, that needs sunlight. And all these ideas are triggered. Mm. But our faith presents us with a vision too it's not just things to do or virtues to practice but it's a way to see the world it's it's theoria it's a vision and a lot of people don't like they see the fathers talk too much about what they call academic subject and it's not academic i think most of the fathers are very easily understood yeah. it's just not their cup of tea where you know here's what you have to do to be a good person <laughs> but it's more like here's how you have to see yeah. And if we don't have the memory in ourselves, apart from our phones, then when we come to see anything, whether it's television or the news or the media, 
or an issue in the community, or even our, our classmates or, or fellow church members or family members. Mm-hmm. We're not going to understand how we should interpret them. Right. And that's going to affect number one relationships, but then eventually spirituality just will naturally dissolve because when we've outsourced everything to a phone, it's like the computer outsources everything to the memory. The computer cannot contemplate. Humans, yeah. humans can. And when we start imitating computers because of a false analogy that we're just advanced computers, yeah. then we'll actually end like the computer and we'll cease to be able to contemplate. And we'll just become some type of monster that is just seeking some type of result. And it's, this is why memory, I think, is so important. And that's why even the fathers who did not have technology, what they were doing still speaks to us and to our spirituality and maybe even more so today. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think you're right too about that idea of seeing rightly. The church fathers talk about that, the theoria, as a result of the memory of God, the neme theo. I don't know if I said that correctly. You can correct me if it was, if it was wrong. I, I think it was right. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, they, they talk about that as a, as a consequence of this memory, which was always this act of contemplation. Um, some of them talk about it as ruminatio, ruminating, literally like the cow, just, you know, continually consuming these thoughts and ideas so that we can consume them and then recall, remember. And then that is what leads to, again, vision, um, that you mentioned this seeing, and I think one another good example, maybe second to Mary, um, or well, let's say sec- second to the liturgy or the work of the people. Um, I think an excellent form of memoria is Dante, which ties in this whole idea too of seeing. And he calls many times throughout the Divine Comedy. He calls upon memory, and as he gets closer and closer to God, he says, "I don't know if my memory is going to be able to serve me now." Um, and he's, he's trying to remember these experiences, but of course it's extremely creative, right? This is, this is one of the most creative works of poetry we have. And this comes back to this distinction between, are we just computers? Well, could a computer create a work of art like the divine comedy? I know people who would say yes, but I will argue until I am dead and beyond because I'm not a computer that they're wrong, that, that a work of art that is that full of the divine spark has to be a work of humanity. It has to be because we are sub-creators created in the image of a creator. Um, So I think this this idea of the vision and the seeing and the memory, those are all tied together really well in Dante. And I think to add to what you said, like it took someone who was contemplative to create the divine comedy. And the result is that those who come to read that poem become contemplative as well. Yeah. So like, like right. you, don't, you can't quantify contemplation. And um, I think that's what these, you know, futurists who think computers are going to take over the world. And I mean, they have already, but they cannot substitute for what humans are. And I think it's because we are already dehumanized in this culture. We don't see a difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't even sense it. But I think for us who, you know, have, have, you know, been privileged and gifted to be able to come into contact with all this literature and the vision of the early church, 
we understand that this aspect of contemplation is the deepest part of human beings. Right. And, it, and it's, it can never be substituted. That's why no matter what arguments others give, it's like, I don't care what the computer created. It wasn't a result of contemplation. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's so, and it won't, you know, um, you know, it may titillate people's senses, but mm-hmm. it will never make them contemplative. Mm-hmm. It will never reorganize, like you said, memory um, mm-hmm. and, and create a robust spirituality that can engage the new things from the old, like right. memoria can. I think in some ways we've positioned ourselves very poorly to begin this act of memoria as 21st century Americans or as people in the world at all. We so highly value productivity that even this idea of, yes, I wanna sit down and contemplate and I wanna meditate in order to then produce, in order to create, already that's not what they were doing. It has to be a stillness that does not demand creativity and productivity. And then creativity comes from it, but we can't demand it. That We have to sit down willing to have nothing come out of our stillness. And that's why I think, I mean, you made a good point about Dante is that he was meditating. He was in exile. We also see Bethius, these two extremely creative thinkers who were both in exile, both outcast, and in this time created these masterful works of art. And surely there wasn't an expectation that they create, I mean, they, they wouldn't have made any money, no profit. Like, I, I don't see why they would have had any yeah. desire. They, they weren't selling books, you know, they weren't selling anything. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. were, they were, it was their soul being poured out on pages. Exactly. And I can't begin with Boethius, uh, The Consolation of Philosophy. I can't begin to tell people to read that book. <laughs> it's 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 one of the deepest and you know fairly easy up until you know like toward the end fairly easy book to understand it really helps you frame things yes um i call it it's a great place to start and in my mind like i associate it with ecclesiastes Mm. it's like a sequel to ecclesiastes and i remember one time and maybe this is an aspect of memoria i was discussing it with a good friend of mine just the book and what it was doing and how it shifts from poetry into prose and, 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 you know, it deals about the, the, you know, futility of the world. He's like, Oh, that's like Ecclesiastes, just like that. <laughs> you know, he made the connection cool. you know, as he's thinking cool. and, and going back to what he knows and reorganizing the material in his head. And I, I definitely think that characterization is um, spot on. So We've touched upon a lot of, you know, ideas for our listeners. It's like, I didn't think memory was this dynamic and important. And Oh, I think we've just begun. There's so much more. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so this is a lot, you know, memory. When people hear memory, they might not have thought of all these dynamic things and, and how robust it is and how important it is to our spirituality, not just not just a good embellishment and decoration, but absolutely integral for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if my listeners today, you know, want to read more into this ancient way of memory or, mm-hmm. or take a course, I know I, I did a course that you taught in the summer, along with a friend of mine who's a priest as well. And uh, we immensely enjoyed it. Um, so w- what's available to them? 
Um, well, in terms of books, if they want to just, you know, go on Amazon and grab some books, um, I'm going to recommend a couple with English translations. If you dive into the primary sources, you're going to get stuck with a lot of different languages. Um, so there's a Mary Carruthers anthology called The Medieval Craft of Memory. And that was, I'm hugely indebted to Mary Carruthers for my understanding of medieval memory. She has multiple books on it. So definitely look at her. Um, Janet Coleman also has some really good books on, um, she has one called Ancient and Medieval Memories. So that one's really good. Um, in terms of just understanding oral cultures and how oral cultures have passed down memory, Lynn Kelly is excellent. She does a lot with um, more indigenous communities. So less medieval, but she does talk about medieval memory palaces as well. So any of her stuff is good. She's got a website and books that she sells as well. Um, and then if you want to dig into some of the older sources, um, Aristotle on memory is really the beginning of it all. Um, look for Quintilian, Quintilian Cicero, um, Hugh of St. Victor, I've mentioned him multiple times. He has a lot of really important things. Um, Alan of Lille, L-I-L-L-E, this isn't in English, but you can find English translations, wrote guides to pastors on how to write sermons and memorize those sermons according to the six win wings of the seraphim. So we didn't really get a chance to talk about this, but memory palaces were often constructions like Noah's Ark or the temple or imaginary things like the kingdom of heaven, imaginative things, um, or the wings of the seraphim. So those are some sources that I would recommend looking at. Thank you. And then for my class, yeah. I did a class on the art of memory. Um, and that kind of looked at the two sides of memory. So understanding the medieval mode of memory, and then also what modern neuroscience says about memory and how they're really reinforcing these ancient practices. And that course is over, but if we get enough requests to offer it again, then we can always offer a course again. So you could email me at Katerina at CirceInstitute.com. Katerina at CirceInstitute.com. That's correct. K-A-T-E-R-I-N-A. So for those of you listening, if she gets enough requests, um, <laughs> she can hold this class again at the Circe Institute. And, and, and the convenient part about it was it was over Zoom. Um, so... You all could come in at any time. You don't have to drive. You can drink your tea as you're, you know, attending class. So thank you so much again for coming on, Katerina. I uh, appreciate it. And um, Oh, I, I, I love being able to talk about these things. So thanks for actually wanting to talk about this with me. Anytime, anytime.